0: This year, Britain's youngest female double murderer became eligible for parole. Lorraine Thorpe was only 15 at the time of the killings, with one of the victims being her own dad. But who was Lorraine? What led to her heinous crimes? And where is she today? Hey Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan. Lorraine was born in Ipswich, Suffolk, to parents Desmond and Deborah Thorpe. Now, her dad was originally from the neighbouring county of Norfolk, but when he met and married Deborah, they settled in the south of Ipswich, specifically in Clapgate Lane. They had four children, Lorraine being one of them, and although the area of Ipswich that they lived in had a pretty high crime rate and not particularly the ideal environment to raise a young family in, the Thorpes appeared to be doing okay. As Lorraine grew older, though, she became more and more of a handful. And her teachers strongly suggested that Des and Deborah have her tested for behavioural and learning difficulties. And it wasn't long before she was formally diagnosed with ADHD. And with that diagnosis came prescription meds, which actually really did help Lorraine control her disruptive behaviours. Her smile was back, and she felt life was going to be good from here on out. Except, as she was about to enter her teens, her life would derail more than anyone could have imagined. Des and Deborah's marriage had been deteriorating for years, and they'd literally been hanging on by a thread. But with both of them drinking excessively, home life just became unbearable. So in 2006, when Lorraine was about 12, they decided to separate. Neither particularly capable of caring for their kids, obviously, if they're spending all their time pretty much drunk. Ipswich Social Services got involved and Lorraine was actually placed in foster care. Now, Deborah was actually deemed fit to care for her after Lorraine had had a brief stint in the foster system. So she came out of the system and moved back in with her mum. But it didn't quite work out. She'd always been a lot closer to her dad over her mum so she ran away and went looking for Dez. Lorraine made sure that she stayed close to her dad and wanted to spend as much time with him as possible. Except after separating from Deborah, Dez had completely spiralled with his drinking even more. He had fallen deeper into his alcoholic slumber and in the space of two years was in a really, really bad way. And at this point, he was deemed a chronic alcoholic and completely incapable of looking after himself or functioning without a regular intake of alcohol. He couldn't even take care of his own personal hygiene or even go to the toilet properly, so he certainly wasn't fit to be caring for a teenage daughter. Because he was deep into being an alcoholic, he looked for people to hang around with that were like-minded. So he actually spent all of his time with Ipswich's drinking community. He hardly ever had a place to stay, so usually just slept rough on the streets. Occasionally, he'd find shelter in a drug den or a disgusting flat that belonged to a drinking buddy. Despite all of this, Lorraine still wanted to give up the comfort of her mum's home to be with her dad. She loved him and she wanted to care for him. But that meant that she, too, now had to sleep out on the streets with him. A game of cat and mouse with social services would play out over the years. They would find her, place her back into a foster home, she would run away, and so on and so forth. Over the years, though, Lorraine got better and better at hiding from social workers. And she spent more time on the streets than anywhere else. Essentially, Lorraine's childhood pretty much ended the day her parents separated. She stopped going to school and no longer had any friends, and she literally gave it all up to become Des's full-time caregiver. He'd become so incapacitated from the huge amounts of alcohol that he could barely walk or at least not unaided. He needed the assistance of someone to lean on, and that someone was, by 2009, 15-year-old Lorraine. So as I said, her dad's community were fellow drunks and drug addicts also living on the streets, which meant that Lorraine also became involved with that street drinking community. But to her, that crowd of social outcasts were her people. She felt like she belonged. Now, we all know that that is not the environment that a young, vulnerable, impressionable teenage girl should be in, right? witnessing constant drinking, drug use, stealing, fighting, basically everything that us as parents try to protect our kids from. Although part of the community, Des was so far gone and on a permanent course of self-destruction that even within his group, he was the ideal target for the bullies amongst them. Rubbing shoulders with dangerous and aggressive men was basically commonplace for Lorraine now. But leader of the pack, an ex-military man and a long-time drug addict and alcoholic, 41-year-old Paul Clark had a soft spot for Lorraine and would often step in to protect her if others hassled her, something her own dad was completely incapable of doing. Now, we don't need to be psychiatrists to know that the amount of unresolved trauma she had, abandonment issues slash being exposed to things no child should deal with, meant that she latched on to the first person that showed her any interest or semblance of caring. It's no surprise. Not only would she have enjoyed the attention that she got from Paul, but he was a big deal. He was high up on that street hierarchy and was paying attention to her. Now, Paul was super proud of his military background, but he was also known for his explosive, angry streak. A volunteer named Brian Tobin, who set up a charity to help alcoholics and the homeless in that area get back on their feet, gave an interview for a show called Murder Town. He said, I first came into contact with Paul Clark in 2008. You could sense the aggression. You could see that he was always the leader, if you like. And from what I know of Paul, I think he would have led by fear, intimidation and violence. He was a very dangerous individual and I always thought that in 2008 when I met him. Now, I've been calling them a drinking community rather than a homeless community because not all of them were homeless and not all of them were dangerous and aggressive. Life had dealt them dud cards and sadly they'd found themselves in a situation that they just couldn't climb their way out of. And one of these people was Rosalind Hunt a 41-year-old mum of two, known by those around her as having a kind and caring nature. By the time 2009 rolled around, Rosie, as she was known, had separated from her husband, and he had gotten custody of their kids. She lived alone in a council flat in Victoria Street, Ipswich, a chronic alcoholic, and it wasn't long before she was a member of the Ipswich drinking community Rosie's brother, Adrian, remembering happier times, was quoted as saying, "Rosalind was my youngest sister. What I remember about Rosie growing up as a little girl was that she was always playful and, you know, a cheerful little kid. She used to bump off school a lot and her and my other sister would always find a derelict house and sort of, you know, pretend that it was theirs, put furniture in it. Where they got the furniture from is beyond me they'd put curtains up and pretend that it was their little house. So Rosie was well known for loving animals and her dream growing up was to become a vet. But sadly, that dream was one that she'd never get to fulfil as she skipped so much school that her grades were basically non-existent. She also found it difficult to socialise with other kids her own age and was generally thought of as a bit of a loner. Her dreams of working with animals moved even further away when, by the age of 18, she found herself married with two kids. And although a good mum to her little boy, her relationship with her daughter was always strained, so much so that eventually she was sent off to live with her grandmother. And although it was Rosie's decision, it still broke her heart, and that was the start of her slow descent into oblivion and the numbing that alcohol gave her. And when the drinking got so bad, her marriage ended. So although part of this drinking community, she was actually classed as more of a successful member of the group. She had more money than most of them as she got a fair few benefits. Plus she had her own council flat, as I said. She'd also stayed close with her ex-husband. And despite their separation, he would often visit Rosie. And on one visit in July of 2009, He found about 10 or more of the Ipswich drinking community inside of her flat. He tried to tell them to leave, but Rosie assured him that everything was okay and she didn't mind. Now, anyone within that crowd that had accommodation and access to money were obviously quickly latched on to the ones who were on the streets and didn't have any money. And in Rosie's case, she was imposed on a lot. Led by Paul, the group began using Rosie's flat as their main drinking den, forcing her to cook for them and even trying to control what she spent her money on. Now, when Paul spoke, everyone backed off. It was Paul's way or no way. And there were actually rumours that Paul and Rosie had been involved romantically for a short period of time, but I couldn't find anything that actually officially confirmed that. Paul was dominant, ruthless and abusive. And he actually started encouraging Lorraine to drink basically as soon as she joined that group. Plus, she was no longer taking her ADHD meds. But if it was okay by Paul, then it was okay by everyone else. Basically, Paul said jump and you said how high. And Des just watched on, never saying anything. And that was that. As for Lorraine, she basically saw herself as Paul's sidekick and felt invincible. But remember, she's 15, so, like, of course she's going to feel like that. Especially seeing this for the first time since her parents' breakup, she probably felt looked after and cared for. And in her mind, Paul had her back. Now, going back to Rosie, it seemed like she was the only one in the community that didn't seem to be phased by Paul and his dictatorship. And her motherly instinct kicked in, and she just knew that the streets of Ipswich was not a suitable environment for a young girl like Lorraine, who should be at school and hanging out with her friends and doing all the things that teenager girls do. So Rosie set about trying to help Lorraine as best as she could and they soon became firm friends. Lorraine knew that she always had a place to crash at at Rosie's and Rosie protected her when she tried to hide from the group or even from the police. On a normal Sunday afternoon at the very beginning of August 2009, Rosie was enjoying some peace and quiet alone in her flat for once. When unannounced, the drinking crowd turned up and started coming in. Now, she wasn't scared as such of Paul, but she also knew better than to fight it. But She also wasn't in the mood for drinking and doing who knows what else that they do. So she told Paul that she would take his pit bull slash staffy mix for a walk into Ipswich Town Centre. Now, just like its owner, the dog was aggressive. And as Rosie walked past a toddler, the dog lunged for the child. Now, a lot of eyewitness accounts I found varied on what exactly happened. But from what I could make out, Rosie either yanked the dog chain or kicked the dog in an attempt to stop it from biting the child. Now, as with most gang leaders, they have a lot of eyes and ears on the street. And before the night was over, the incident had made its way to Paul. Rosie was also connected, and she was tipped off that Paul knew that she had potentially kicked the dog or whatever had happened. And rightly so. She was freaked out and terrified of what might happen to her. I mean, like I said, she wasn't necessarily scared of Paul But she wasn't naive to what he was capable of doing. She knew that there was no way that she could go back to her flat where everyone was still there drinking. So she decided to go and stay with Des, Lorraine's dad. And at the time he was actually staying in a flat only about two miles away from her place. When she didn't come back to the flat, Lorraine figured that she might have gone to her dad's place. So she headed over there and convinced her that everything was okay. But Paul wasn't angry. And he understood that she had to do what she had to do. Lorraine put Rosie so at ease that she convinced her that it was okay to go home. And if she wanted, she could even go with her to Paul's flat and see for herself. Now, remember Rosie wanted to be a vet. She adored animals and would never harm one. So she was super relieved to hear that Paul realised that. And that the story had been massively blown out of proportion. Rosie knew in her heart of hearts that she had saved a child and hadn't hurt the dog in the process. So Paul believing that was a huge relief to her. So she left Desi's flat with Lorraine. A week passed and none of the usual crowd had seen or heard from Rosie. So by the time the following Sunday rolled around on August 9th, her neighbour called the police and asked for a welfare check. Knocking and getting no response, police forced their way into her flat and found her bruised and battered body in the bedroom. Now, news of Rosie's death spread like wildfire through the community and everyone was in shock, wondering who would want Rosie, one of the kindest, most generous people, dead. But at the same time that those conversations were going around, both Paul and Lorraine were heard bragging to friends about how they had killed Rosie. Now, ordinarily, no one said anything against Paul, but not with this. They were devastated and furious. Now, Lorraine's dad, Des, overheard his daughter and Paul boasting and laughing about how they tortured and killed Rosie. Usually drunk as a skunk and too weak to stand up to anyone, this time he lost it and threatened to go to the police. His friends knew that he would never shop his own flesh and blood into the police. And also, let's not forget that he was so crippled by his abuse of alcohol that he could barely get to the toilet, let alone the police station. And why now he decided to step up and attempt to be the father figure that Lorraine had needed for the last few years, we'll never know. But he did, and sadly, it was too little too late. The love and wanting to care for her dad had long gone for Lorraine. Since having Paul in her life, she'd lost all interest in her dad. And Des's attempt at parenting would also prove to be a fatal mistake. In the early hours of Monday the 10th of August 2009, the owner of the flat that Des was staying in came home to find Des's lifeless body laying on the couch. The owner immediately called emergency services and paramedics were at the scene within minutes, but it was too late he was pronounced dead at the scene and police were called. Now, the officers that responded had noted that Des had blood around his mouth, along with many other injuries. But because of him being an alcoholic, they also couldn't rule out the possibility that he'd died due to natural causes. Investigators, though, weren't stupid, and the fact that he'd been found dead less than a day after one of his friends was found murdered wasn't lost on them. Now, Paul wasn't the only one with eyes and ears on the street. The police had plenty of informants. So it didn't actually take long for them to find out about the talk on the street, that Paul Clark and Lorraine Thorpe were going around telling everyone that they'd killed Rosie and that when Des had threatened to report them to the police, they'd killed him too. Within hours of that same day, police found Paul and he was arrested and taken to Ipswich Police Station. Lorraine was then traced to her mum's address and also arrested. Obviously, no surprise, Lorraine denied any involvement in her dad's death. Bizarrely though, she spent the entire interview giggling. And police noted in their reports that it was as clear as day that she didn't grasp the seriousness of the situation. Then all of a sudden, out of the blue, during her interview, Lorraine let something slip. She said, yeah, you'll find my footprint on my dad. Excuse me? What? Like, what? You will find my footprint on my dad. And that they did. On Des's forehead was a print made by a shoe. A shoe that matched Lorraine's. Pressure marks from teeth on the inside of his lips were also consistent with an excessive external pressure being applied punch and kick marks were found on various parts of his body. Basically, Des had been severely beaten. So 15-year-old Lorraine was boasting about killing Rosie to her friends, but surely, like surely, she wouldn't have murdered her own dad. And in such a brutal way. I mean, this is the girl that had given up a more comfortable life with her mum to be with her dad and look after him. Crime scene officers had been searching Dez's flat and found a pillow with bloodstains all over it. The blood was sent off for tracing and came back as belonging to Dez. So not only had he been beaten and stamped on, but it looked like he'd been suffocated too. While forensics were going through Dez's things, Rosie's autopsy was done and it revealed just what horrors she'd endured. From the police's evidence and the coroner's report, it was established that Rosie had been systematically tortured over a period of days, with the official cause of death being put down as blunt force trauma. All that she'd done for Lorraine obviously meant not a thing. Investigators gradually were able to start putting pieces of the puzzle together and they came up with a timeline of events leading up to both Rosie and Dez's death. First of all, I know it, you know it, Rosie even knew it, that she was right to be afraid of Paul after the whole dog biting slash lunging thing. He was furious and felt that Rosie shouldn't get away with stopping his dog from doing whatever his dog wanted to do. It was him that sent Lorraine to Dez's place to smooth things over with Rosie and lure her back into a trap. Trusting Lorraine, she'd fallen for the lies that Paul was not mad at her. Lorraine had become like a daughter to her, so there was no way that she would lie to her, or so Rosie thought. Instead, Lorraine led her out of the safety of Des's flat like a lamb to slaughter. The two of them, that being Lorraine and Paul, then held Rosie against her will at Paul's flat, where Paul unleashed his full rage onto Rosie. And Lorraine was a willing participant and she even enjoyed hurting the woman that had protected her so many times. The torture that Rosie suffered was literally horrific. They sliced the left side of her face with a cheese grater and then rubbed salt into those raw wounds. She was brutally kicked, punched and slapped with most of her injuries being on her torso. Then to really make his point, Paul used a dog chain and beat her with it repeatedly. In the end, Rosie had nine broken ribs, multiple strangulation marks, and her hair had been set on fire. Witnesses told police that they'd heard Paul and Rain bragging about the mental torture that they'd inflicted on her as well. They threatened Rosie with an electric fan, so they'd taken the front protective guard off and held the rotating blades inches from her face. She was also forced to get into a suitcase, which was then zipped up for a period of time that the coroners couldn't pinpoint exactly. Now, devastatingly, on the Tuesday, so that's two days after they'd essentially kidnapped Rosie, both Paul and Lorraine walked her back to her flat to continue the abuse there. Hearing commotion, her neighbour called the police. Now, incidentally... That's the same neighbour that had called the police when they did find her body. So the police came, knocked on the door, and when no one replied, they left. I mean, that poor neighbour, they really had tried to look out for Rosie. Now, why I say devastatingly is because coroners believe that Rosie was most likely still alive when the officers knocked on her door that Tuesday afternoon. But being so badly injured and mutilated, it was likely that she wouldn't have even been able to move or call out. And I can't even begin to imagine how desperately she would have probably tried to call out for help or make some sort of noise to alert police that she was home. And then the devastation that she must have felt hearing them walk away, knowing that was it. Her chance for getting out of this was gone. Interestingly, action was actually taken against those officers who had knocked and just left. And I don't know how I feel about that. Like, there's many cases that we've covered on here where, yeah, I've been mad at the incompetence of the police. But I'm not so sure in this case. She hadn't been missing long. She was a grown adult, a known drunk, and they can't just be breaking doors down willy-nilly. For all they knew, she could have just been laying in a drunken stupor. But when they did come for that welfare check, it had been a week. And they did knock the door down, because I guess they felt there was more justifiable cause. But again, on the same token, as much as I'm kind of conflicted as to what I think about that, I am painfully aware that had they persisted, they likely could have saved Rosie. At some point in their reign of terror, Lorraine and Paul left Rosie's place, and when they came back, they forced sleeping pills down Rosie's throat. Their plan being to make Rosie's death look like a suicide, which, <laughs> okay guys, she'd beat herself to a pulp, did she, and then took an overdose? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, just a couple of Einsteins, those two. Thankfully, Des' autopsy came back showing that he didn't suffer the same prolonged torture that Rosie had. Not that his was a quick death, though. Like I said, he'd been kicked, punched, stamped on, and then finally suffocated. But it had all been done in a short span of time. Being as physically frail as he was, there was no way that he would have been fighting back, so the torture was purely for their pleasure. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, he may not have been winning Father of the Year awards, but he was still her dad. Paul and Lorraine were both charged with two counts of murder, one for Rosalind Hunt and one for Desmond Thorpe. Investigators then got the help of social workers to try and figure out exactly what the relationship between Paul and Lorraine was. Was it sexual? Because if it was, Paul had a whole heap more charges coming at him, seeing as Lorraine was only a minor. But both of them vehemently denied ever having a physical relationship, and since there was no evidence to prove otherwise, no charges were filed. This trial gripped the entire country when it began in July 2010. Both Paul and Lorraine pled not guilty on both counts of murder. Frustratingly, forensic evidence placing them at the scene was pointless because both of them were regularly known to hang out in Rosie's flat, so obviously their DNA was everywhere. Instead, the prosecution had to rely on witness testimony. During the course of the seven-week trial, the jury had to listen to witness testimony from drug addicts, alcoholics, and people with personality disorders, making for a difficult case to prove. And as you can imagine, the defence would have had a field day with claiming the reliability of these witnesses. But what didn't go in her favour was just like when she'd been interviewed, Lorraine spent the whole trial giggling and laughing. She'd look around the courtroom, smile at people, and then burst into fits of giggles. Because of her ADHD, the judge did allow a lot of breaks. But all that did was make it harder again for the prosecution because it just broke things up and made it feel bitty with no momentum. However, as the trial progressed and the details of the assaults and the murder of Rosie and Des were described to everyone in the courtroom, the level of violence shocked everyone to their core. Lorraine didn't take the stand and she didn't give evidence at trial and in fact denied being at either of the addresses or present during the murders. But one witness testified to hearing both Lorraine and Paul shouting at Rosie, we're going to kill you, we are going to kill you. The defence tried to paint Rosie as a dog beater, but couldn't provide any proof that she'd actually kicked the dog that day. Instead, witnesses counteracted that argument with how well known she was to love animals. The prosecution, Patricia Lynch QC, armed with reports from psychologists, Gave the jury their theories. They believed that Rosie was going to report her concerns about Lorraine to social services and that Lorraine had found out. Not wanting to lose her friendship or relationship or whatever you want to call it with Paul had been the motivation for Lorraine to get involved with her murder. They provided the court with evidence that the police had gone to Rosie's address on Wednesday, the 17th of June. 2009 looking for Lorraine so that was about six weeks before the murder. Paul had been fuming that the police even knew that Lorraine had been staying with Rosie and blamed Rosie for telling social services where Lorraine was because they actually took Lorraine and placed her back into foster care but in true Lorraine style within days she'd managed to run away again. As for Des, both Lorraine and Paul claimed that he was a drunk and must have choked on his own vomit while sleeping But the defence couldn't argue with the medical evidence, supporting the fact that he'd been beaten and suffocated. Throughout the trial, Paul didn't show an ounce of remorse and continued with his insistence that he'd never killed anyone and that it was all Lorraine. But no one was buying it. The prosecution laid out that Lorraine hadn't been intimidated or forced by Paul and that he hadn't been influenced by her either. They both had their own motives wanting Rosie and Des dead. The defence though did have some success. They used the mitigating circumstances of Lorraine's ADHD and how her symptoms were controlled with meds and because she'd stopped taking them all, her symptoms of irritability, lack of attention and inability to think clearly were running riot. The jury took 17 hours to deliberate and came back with four guilty verdicts. Both Paul and Lorraine were found guilty of the murders of Rosie and Des. And at the time, Lorraine was Britain's youngest female double murderer. Now 16, she was handed a life sentence with a minimum of 14 years before being eligible for parole. Paul was given life with a minimum of 27 years. And I know I feel like I say this every week, but of course the story doesn't end As always, as everybody does, Lorraine appealed her conviction, saying that it was unsafe for her to be in prison, but her appeal was thrown out. And for the supposed tough guy that he was, Paul took the coward's way out. He couldn't hack it in prison, and on September 1st, 2014, he hung himself in his cell. He'd served four years of his prison sentence. So what about today? Well, Lorraine is now 28 and she actually became eligible for parole in August of this year and has been granted a hearing. Now, a date for that hearing hasn't been set yet, but essentially it could be any day now. And to me, it's such a tough one. Is she a danger to society or was she just a kid that had been dealt crappy cards and instead of love and guidance was handed a bottle of booze and a life of delinquency? But do those reasons make up for the fact that two lives were unfairly taken and cut short? As often in these types of cases, there's no winners in this situation. Thanks for listening. To see today's case photos, click on the link in the case description to join the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group. And if you're enjoying being here, please leave a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Until next week, stay safe.